This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Kate McCann. Starting with an opinion piece by Dave Anderson. Creating alternative realities to justify forever wars and overthrowing democracy. On the morning of September 11, 2001, I was a little late leaving for work. As I passed a motel on 28th Street Frontage Road, a man ran out and yelled, They hit the Pentagon too. I ignored him. Didn't have time to deal with some nutcase. I hadn't heard about the terrorist attacks. As it turned out, the guy's freakout was understandable. He was probably from out of town, and I was the first person he could talk to. That discombobulated and horrific day provoked a vulnerability in all of us that morphed into a sort of national solidarity. But as soon as the Bush administration would squander the public spiritedness, soon anybody who dissented from their policies was suspicious. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists, Bush announced. The mainstream news media fell in line and discordant political commentators were purged from cable networks. Pop culture, from TV to movies and music, suddenly became jingoistic. Cultural historian Lynn Spiegel notes it became unpatriotic to suggest that there was anything wrong with the United States. A radio conglomerate sent out a memo to stations around the country with a long list of songs hosts should avoid. We were enveloped in a fog of hubris and magical thinking. The U.S. was the only superpower on the planet, and we would apparently ignore empirical reality. In 2004, journalist Ron Susskind interviewed a top Bush aide, later identified as dirty trickster Karl Rove. He told Siskin that guys like him were in the reality-based community, which he defined as people who believe that solutions emerge from your judicious study of discernible reality. Rose said, that's not the way the world really works anymore. We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, judiciously as you will, we'll act again creating other new realities, which you can study too. And that's how things will sort out. We're history's actors, and you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. Let's go back to 1992, when then-Senator Joe Biden, an influential and rather hawkish member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, raised alarms at a neoconservative U.S. grand strategy put forth by the George H.W. Bush administration. He denounced it as literally a Pax Americana, a global security system where threats to stability are suppressed or destroyed by U.S. military power. The strategy was promoted in 1997 by a newly created Project for the New American Century, PNAC. The group published two letters in 1998 urging the Clinton administration and Congress to, among other things, be prepared to use military force to help remove Iraqi President Saddam Hussein from power. Clinton ignored them, but when George W. Bush became president, the neoconservative worldview dominated foreign policy, with PNAC members such as Dick Cheney, the vice president, and Donald Rumsfeld, Defense Secretary, taking charge. 
hardly five hours after the 9-11 attacks, Rumsfeld was telling his aides to come up with plans for striking Iraq, even though there was no evidence linking Saddam Hussein to the attacks. Over and over, the Bush neoconservatives made claims that Saddam was involved with al-Qaeda, or even behind 9-11, that Saddam was reconstituting his weapons of mass destruction program. These were lies. The neocons clashed with the U.S. intelligent community over this. We were told that the forceful military might was necessary to stop another 9-11. But the wars grind on without peace or victory. The Costs of War Project at Brown University recently released a report saying that the cost of the global war on terror stands at $8 trillion and 900,000 deaths. Donald Trump came along and claimed the elites don't allow the military to do what needs to be done. He had the attitude of a soldier of fortune t-shirt, which said, kill them all and let God sort them out, an unofficial slogan of U.S. special forces in Vietnam, as well as in Iraq and Afghanistan, with Allah sorting them out. Civilian deaths from airstrikes in Afghanistan increased drastically during the Trump era, according to Costs of War Project. The number of civilians killed rose about 330% from 2016, the last full year of the Obama administration, to 2019. Trump relaxed the rules of engagement for bombing. Trump's envoys signed a peace deal with the Taliban without the involvement of the Afghan government. Some 5,000 Taliban prisoners were released from prison. This was a signal that the game was over. Afghan tribal leaders cut their own deals with the Taliban. Military commanders surrendered to the Taliban. Is it surprising that the regime collapsed so quickly? In an alternative reality, the war comes home. The arrested January 6th insurrectionists are political prisoners. Climate change is a hoax. The virus is like the flu. Every election is stolen if the Republican loses. Help! The Great Experiment. Can resident-owned mobile home parks save manufactured housing communities? By Angela K. Evans. The Sansuchi community is something of a manufactured housing success story, at least so far. In late June, the residents of the nearly 11-acre property off Highway 93 in unincorporated Boulder County purchased the mobile home park from its corporate owners for $3.3 million. Sansuti, without worry, in French, is now completely resident-owned. The overarching goal is autonomy and security, says Michael Pierce, Sansuti resident and president of the co-op that just purchased the park south of Boulder. So to be autonomous, you need affordability and control over your living circumstances. Seen as the largest reserve of unsubsidized affordable housing in the country, preserving manufactured home communities is a priority for state and local leaders grappling with an unaffordability across the region. Bolstered by a new Colorado opportunity to purchase law and supported by a national nonprofit that specializes in resident-owned communities, Sansuchi has become a beacon of hope for other 
manufactured housing communities. But some of the challenges of resident-owned communities are just starting to surface in Colorado, as there are only five such parks across the state, all purchased by residents in the last two years. In order to secure financing for the park, Sansuchi residents chose to increase their rent by $150 a month. There may also be additional infrastructure costs to account for flood mitigation, replacing a self-contained water system, and updating its sewer plant, among other projects. Already, other communities in the area are facing the realities of running their own parks, and some limitations in the new opportunity to purchase law, which requires mobile home park owners to notify residents of intended sale, allowing them 90 days to put together a purchase offer themselves. Residents at Table Mesa Village, just across the highway from San Chuchi, have submitted several offers to purchase their park, all of which have gone unanswered. And a community in Fort Collins recently failed to put together an offer to purchase their park. It's a huge challenge to achieve success under this new opportunity to purchase timeline, says Andy Cadleck, Program Director for Thistle ROC, the Colorado affiliate of the national nonprofit ROC USA. We've done it, but it's a challenge. The issues surrounding manufactured housing communities are well documented. It's hard to talk to anyone working in the space and not hear about John Oliver's 2019 segment exploring the predatory practices of some park owners. At most mobile home parks, property owners lease lots to residents, charge rent, and in some cases, draw water utilities off a single meter. For years, mom-and-pop owners around the country have increased rents incrementally, perhaps more in certain years, to cover infrastructure costs. Whether to keep prices low or due to mismanagement, many parks have delayed maintenance of key infrastructure like water pipes, roads, electrical lines, and more. While this is catching up with a lot of parks, it has kept them affordable for a lot of homeowners, many whose mobile homes depreciate in value each year, unlike most other real estate investments. Increasingly, local park owners are retiring, making way for investors and corporate owners to institute new park policies and restrictions and raise lot rents to market rate, forcing many long-term residents out. Despite common nomenclature, mobile homes are not really mobile, costing anywhere from $8,000 to $22,000 to relocate. In essence, despite owning their homes, residents feel powerless when up against the forces of park owners. With inflated real estate prices and a lack of affordable housing, Colorado, Boulder County in particular, is all too familiar with these issues. In many cases, the high cost of living exacerbates them. Preserving and expanding manufactured housing opportunities is part of the long-term strategy of Boulder Valley Comprehensive Plan. It's a priority for the city of Boulder, which first changed its zoning laws in 1985 to prevent the rezoning and redevelopment of mobile home parks. It is a different type of sense of community that is really important to the folks who live there and really important to us as Boulder, says Brenda Rettenauer, neighborhood liaison for the city of Boulder. I think it strengthens our diversity in the city.
Several years ago, the city started convening the Coalition of Manufactured Homeowners in Boulder, or CMOP, which has served as an important resource for many residents of the area's manufactured housing communities. The group has no regulatory or policy-making authority. It was at a CMOB meeting, Boulder, where Representative Edie Hooten first heard about the issues in mobile home parks. The people who own mobile homes, it is their primary asset. It is their retirement. It's their home. But they are beholden to basically the whims of the park owner on frequency of raising lot rent on maintenance of the property, what they can get away with in respect to utility building, billing, and who's overseeing the metering, Hooten says. In collaboration with CMOB, park residents, the city and county of Boulder, and the Sustainable Community Development Clinic at CU Boulder, Hooten spearheaded efforts in the state legislature to address issues facing mobile home owners. This led to a series of new laws in the last few years, most notably updates to the Mobile Home Park Act, including a robust dispute resolution mechanism monitored by the state through the Department of Local Affairs, as well as the opportunity for homeowners to purchase land. This has always been my end game. Homeowners own their own community, that they have a homeowners association that works together on responsibilities for private property maintenance, community property maintenance. They just make all the decisions the park owners do without ulterior motives and a reasonable lot rent that will cover the costs of maintaining a community, Hooten says, and they work on that together. For years, Sansuchi is a local mom-and-pop operation whose owners more or less left residents alone, barring a serious issue, says Pierce. There was a saying in the park, the best thing about our owners is they don't do much, and the worst thing about our ownership, they don't do much, he says. All of that changed when corporate owners took over. The 2018 sale caught park residents by surprise. Previously, some residents expressed interest in purchasing the park, but the owners had told residents they weren't interested in selling. Then residents came home to a notice saying the park was being so, had been sold. When the heavy-handed management practices came in, everybody came out and said, well, we've got to do something about this, Pierce says. Pierce has been in the park since 1995, when he began working in the philosophy department at CU Boulder. Several residents have been there even longer. Historic rent increases were rarely more than 3% a year, and typically under 2%, he says. But just before the park sold, rent increased by 12%, a hike that continued under corporate owners. In 2019, several residents, including Pierce, helped CMOB and others draft new legislation, even though they didn't expect their park to go up for sale anytime soon. That kind of dropped out of the sky unexpectedly, says Pierce. Weirdly, we had worked on getting this legislation going and ended up being one of the first parks to be able to take advantage of the new law. Modeled off other state statutes and national standards, Colorado's 2019 Opportunity to Purchase Law is not a first right of refusal for residents. Rather, it's intended to increase transparency in the process of a park sale and provide an opportunity to residents to purchase their park 
with a competitive market rate offer. It's all about the market, says Mike Bullard, Marketing and Communications Manager for ROC USA. These communities are investments for commercial owners, and we understand that, but we don't want them to continue to be. It's getting people's homes out of the speculative real estate market. ROC USA, launched in 2008, born out of the previously successful model operating in New Hampshire since 1984, offering limited equity loans to co-ops purchasing manufactured housing communities. Nowadays, about a third of all mobile home parks in New Hampshire are organized resident-owned communities. The ROC operates in 20 states, supporting 278 communities representing 19,000 homes. Under the ROC model, residents of a park vote to form a co-op that then appeals to lenders in order to make an offer. ROC USA works closely with its subsidiary, ROC USA Capital, in financing such purchases, offering a limited equity loan up to 110% of the purchase price that includes pre-development funds for the community to hire experts like engineers and attorneys to ensure due diligence. If a deal falls through, the pre-development loan is forgivable. If it's successful, that cost rolls over into the acquisition loan. Sometimes this seems too good to be true, but this is what we do, Bullard says. And compared to traditional commercial loans, where park residents would have to come up with a 20 to 25 percent down payment, it might be. In ROC's limited equity co-op model, the profit margin is taken out of the equation, Bullard says. In order to work with ROC USA, the maximum one-time member share is $1,000, but each community sets its own price. Almost all the communities in partnership with ROC USA have rates between 100 and 250. That's the extent of people's personal financial skin in the game, he says. If a resident moves, the fee is returned to them, and the next person who moves in will then pay the one-time fee. Homeowners still pay lot rents, but instead of paying to a landlord, that money goes towards paying off the loan, property taxes on the park, operating costs, insurance, utilities, and other expenses. To date, all resident-owned communities in the ROC model are successful with no defaults or reversion back to private ownership. Although initially some residents see a cost increase in the first few years of community ownership, like Sansuchi, it eventually stabilizes, Bullard says. What we found is that within five years of resident ownership, all but one community was back down to market level rents or below. One community even had rents that were 22% below market rate. On average, resident-owned communities raise site rents about 0.9% annually. The average rent increase in commercially owned properties is 3.9%. And although affordability is important, the ROC model is about more than cost as Cadillac with Thistle ROC. It's about preservation, and it's about control and power, he says. We're giving these residents the opportunity to really have some self-determination, 
and some decision-making in the way their communities are owned and operated for the first time probably ever. The numbers always speak the strongest, but I think it's always important to remember that this is more than just tomorrow. It's for the rest of their lives, that decision to preserve and stabilize. There are some limitations to the ROC model, however. First and foremost, the sale of a community to a co-op depends on both a willing seller and buy-in from residents. Securing financing, especially in the 90-day window allotted by the Colorado law, can also be a challenge. In states without an opportunity to purchase law, Bullard says the organization focuses its efforts on building relationships with park owners and brokers more than homeowners, so that when they're ready to sell, the controlling entities turn first to residents and the ROC model. We only work in communities where the owner is willing to sell to homeowners, because if they're not, there's no opportunity, period. In 2019, the 36 residents of the Longmont Mobile Home Community, with help from Thistle and the City of Longmont, were able to purchase their park for about $3.2 million by forming the LMP Co-op. LMP became the second resident-owned community in the state, and because the sale went through prior to the new law taking effect, the key to its success was a willing seller. It was really helpful to have an owner engaged in the process and wanting to work with us, Kedlek says. He wanted to sell to the residents and wanted to leave a legacy. The residents almost unanimously agreed to raise their own lot rents in order to purchase the park, about 100 to 125 each, according to Kedlek. They now pay roughly $700 a month. When the opportunity came up for us to buy the community, it was pretty exciting, former co-op president Mike King told ROC USA at the time. We own it, and we're able to see the lot rent based on an actual budget. In general, however, park owners around the state were resistant to opportunity to purchase and similar manufactured housing legislation, according to Hooten. The law was seen as an abdication of their authority as a property owner, she says. Even though we're not asking them to give up all authority, they maintain their rights as property owners to basically raise lot rents and decide who they want to sell their property to, like any other private property owner, she says. So what's the beef? If they're asking for $20 million for their park, and the homeowners put up $20 million to purchase it, why does it matter who they sell to? Susan Gibson has lived in her home in Table Mesa Village, just south of Boulder off Highway 93 in unincorporated Boulder County for 25 years. When she first moved in, her lot rent was $235, she says, which was great considering she's never worked for much more than minimum wage. Rent only went up about $10 or so a year. Usually, one year it was 15 to pay for an infrastructure project. So five years ago, she was paying 475 a month. Which is why most of us old-timers moved here, because we thought this is a place where we can live, where we can afford to live on whatever our low income is. Or some people just choose to be creative instead of hustling or whatever, Gibson says. Then the property sold to a new owner, Zane Blackmer, in 2016, with little warning to the residents. 
Now rent is $800, Gibson says. Since the sale, Gibson and other residents organized into an informal HOA, began attending CMOB meetings, and testified at the state capitol in support of the opportunity to purchase law, inspired by the success of LMP. So when Blackmer notified residents of his intent to sell in 2020, Gibson says it was a fairly easy to organize the group into a co-op and with the help of Thistle, submit an offer. However, Blackmer did not respond to the group's initial offer, so they made him two more offers, each time raising their price, with no response. We just don't know what to do, Gibson says. There's nothing we can do to make him accept any offers from us at this point. When reached for comment, Blackmer declined. Gibson says the offer was more than double what Sansuti was eventually purchased for. The cost of the trailer park should be based on the number of lots and amenities, she says. We have zero amenities. There's no playground here. There's no swimming pool. There's barely any trees. So we actually should be paying less per lot than a trailer park like Sansuchi, which at least has a playground. With each unanswered offer, Gibson says support for the idea waned as the cost per resident increased. The last offer they submitted would have increased monthly rents to just over $1,100, but the residents say they still have never heard from Blackmer, and the property is no longer listed for sale. One of the largest challenges to the ROC model is not just getting the financing together, but doing it in a way that keeps parks affordable for residents. Like other forms of real estate, it's reliant on and given to whims of market forces. Purchasing the parks at market rate inevitably raises lot rents two or three years in advance to be competitive. For Sansuchi, that means lot fees just went up to $750 from 605 in the beginning of September. In the coming months, they may increase again to $800 and then 856 before stabilizing to an average increase of about 1% a year to account for cost of living increases. We knew that was going to be tough and that the market rate wasn't going to be sustainable for many residents, he says. The additional cost of capital improvement projects beyond the acquisition price accounts for some of the rent increase, however. And there is a chance, Pierce says, that with additional funding, the Sansuchi Co-op will be able to keep prices below $800. In early August, the Co-op received a $1 million grant from the State Housing Board that should help and perhaps allow the Co-op to set up a rent relief fund for the lowest income residents. Just about every park right now that can take advantage of the opportunity to purchase law is facing this dilemma that they can stabilize their prices but they can't stabilize them at a place where we're we're preventing major displacement. And so there's got to be a way for other funds to be made available, he says. Additional support and partnerships are often necessary to make the financing for resident-owned communities to work. In Colorado, the state has awarded $3.4 million in grants or zero-interest cash flow loans in the five deals that have been successful. Local foundations and nonprofits have contributed as well, bringing funds to purchase as well as to reduce the financing to help with down payments. 
But resident-owned communities are relatively new, especially in Colorado. And because of that, Pierce says, finding additional funders has been challenging. Ultimately, he attributes this to differing models addressing affordability in the region. While most municipalities are focused on new developments, affordable rentals, or deed-restricted housing for people, making a certain percentage of AMI, residents in manufactured homes bought into their communities with the understanding that their home came without such restrictions. For example, Pierce says, Boulder County Housing has expressed interest in helping San Suchi with possible funding for years and have consistently gotten nowhere productive. Any funding from the county, he continues, would come with conditions that wouldn't necessarily work for the San Suchi residents, like deed restricting the homes, and could even cause rifts and factions to form within the community. That's the model the county is operating under, and it works in a different context, but not in ours, he says. They really need to think about how to prevent displacement for mobile home park people without basically having to extract a pound of flesh. Speaking as a steering committee member for the Boulder County Regional Housing Partnership, RHP, Kurt Fernhaber, director of the City of Boulder Housing and Human Services Department, writes in an email, With the main source of funding for housing authorities coming from low-income housing tax credits, they do not currently have resources that can be applied to manufacturing housing communities. However, the RHP has looked at other sources of funding to support such communities, as well as state-level legislation that benefits and protects residents of these communities. At the state level, Hooten is working with other legislators to address some of the funding shortfalls. She proposes a revolving low-interest loan fund for mobile home communities where the residents want to purchase their park. She says the financing could potentially come from funds earmarked for affordable housing under the new federal transportation bill, although nothing has been decided. Although Sansuchi residents strongly supported the idea of purchasing the park at first, some grew frustrated by the increasing price tag as the numbers from ROCUSA Capital came in. It felt, Pierce says, that there was still a large player dictating major expenses and fear that in the end residents would still get saddled with the substantial costs. The other part that makes a lot of people squeamish about going this route is that a co-op and HOA are really close to the same thing, Pierce says. They're just slightly different business models, but they're close enough that the scare stories about HOAs affect residents. And so a lot, lot of them would say, no, I don't want to be part of an HOA. Those are nightmares. In the end, the co-op was still able to garner enough support for the purchase to succeed, although it was not unanimous. We had a choice between corporate owners or the ROC USA model, Pierce says, and despite the unhappiness of the price tag, even with the flood mitigation reserve, it was still financially the better option for anybody who plans to be around for more than three years. Thistle, Kedluck says, generally requires about 75% engagement from an individual community to feel comfortable assisting them with a purchase, even though the state law only requires a simple majority of 51%. 
When we're looking at a community that may have a really big rent increase, she says, we want to see more engagement because it's something that can create a lot of animosity or can create unity in the community. Recently in Fort Collins, an effort by a resident co-op of Hickory Village Mobile Home Park to purchase its park failed. Now the private real estate investment group Haven Park Communities, which has a history of pricing out residents, is set to purchase the park for $32 million. Initially, the current owner announced the sale in March and the residents offered $23.1 million for the park, securing support from enough homeowners. However, according to a complaint filed with the state, the seller ignored the co-op's offer. In response, the park owner initiated a new 90-day period for the co-op to submit an offer in late June, but this time there wasn't enough resident support. Even if a community is ultimately successful in purchasing its park from a single owner, in the co-op model park rules and policies have to be decided and enforced by fellow residents, which can get tricky. At Sansuchi, Pierce says residents are just starting to voice differing opinions about living habits like pets and cleanliness. There can also be long-held interpersonal conflicts and other frustrations, as everyone is expected to contribute to running the community. Plus, running a park takes a lot of time, effort, and skill, which can overburden the all-volunteer endeavor. Sometimes it can be a little more work, Cadillac says. Democracy is messy sometimes, but I think it's one of the better ways that we can do it. Whether or not residents succeed in purchasing their park, there are inherent benefits to trying, Cadillac says. Residents become leaders in their own communities, learning to speak up for themselves in public meetings, advocating for assistance and preservation. We're creating community and we're bringing people together. We're introducing neighbors to each other and making those connections, Cadillac says, and that's just going to make the community stronger, whether they buy or not. Now an article by Carly Huckles. How many Afghan refugees will come to Colorado? No one knows, but the state stands ready. As crisis consumes their homeland, Colorado is one of a handful of states working to provide sanctuary for Afghan refugees. President Joe Biden declared at the end of August that he was not going to extend the war in Afghanistan after the last U.S. troops were withdrawn from the country. As of September 9th, evacuation flights resumed for U.S. citizens, but these flights are leaving people behind. At-risk Afghans are still waiting for permission to board evacuation flights, as well as those visas, those whose visas were approved but couldn't get stamped at the U.S. Embassy, which remains shut down. There are still fears that the Biden administration might abandon a large number of Afghan allies. We will continue these efforts to facilitate the safe and orderly travel of American citizens, lawful permanent residents, and Afghans who worked for us and wished to leave Afghanistan. National Security Council's Emily Horn said in a statement about the evacuation flights. Because there is an ongoing terrorist threat to operations of this nature, we will not be sharing details of these efforts before people are safely out of the country. 
As the world was, is waiting and watching to see what happens next, Colorado cities and officials are calling for action. Many Colorado officials, including Governor Jared Polis, Boulder Mayor Sam Weaver, and Denver City Council President Stacy Gilmore, signed a letter calling on Biden administration to prioritize restoring our nation's refugee resettlement infrastructure as quickly as possible and to fulfill the pledge to admit 125,000 refugees in fiscal year 2022. The form is open to signatures, or was, until September 17th. Organizations in Denver have already started implementing plans to shelter refugees, helping them get through the legal immigration process and trying to ensure individuals' family members get into the country. Four congressmen are urging the Department of Homeland Security to establish Temporary Protected Status, TPS, for these refugees, including Joe Nagus of Colorado and Tom Milanowski of New Jersey. Nagus is a child of African refugees, and Milanowski immigrated to the U.S. as a child. In a letter to Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, the congressman asked for protection for Afghan parolees and those in the U.S. on student and visitor visas. The TPS designation would ensure Afghans who are currently in the U.S. would not be forced to return to Afghanistan under Taliban rule. The US, United States has long been a beacon of hope to refugees. It's critical we maintain that position of moral authority at this consequential moment, Congressman Nagu said in a letter. Offering TPS to Afghans at risk will provide safety and stability and remove barriers for those still in Afghanistan who need a safe place to land. We still need to facilitate the transfer of vulnerable Afghans to the U.S. and protect Afghans that already are here for, for, from deportation, Congressman Milanowski wrote. TPS would ensure that we don't force any Afghans back into a situation where their life would be at risk under Taliban rule. Since 2014, a total of 34,500 special immigrant visas, SIVs, have been allocated, allocated for Afghan principal applicants. This year, an additional 8,000 were added under the Emergency Security Supplemental Appropriations Act. With the State Department's authority under the Afghan Allies Protection Act of 2009, they will continue to issue SIVs until they run out. In preparation for more Afghan evacuees entering Colorado, organizations like Lutheran Family Services Rocky Mountains are emphasizing the need for volunteers and donations. Colorado communities are showing an outpouring of support, but more resources are still needed. Donna Dalton, Director of Marketing and Communications for Lutheran Family Services, says agencies across the country are working together to help support, inform, and provide basic supply essentials to refugees as they resettle into their new communities. We have limited storage and do not know at this time how many individuals will arrive, Dalton says. These families often arrive with few belongings and need housing, food, home goods, and other basics as they get on their feet. In Boulder, 
Organizations like Colorado Sanctuary are assisting agencies working directly with refugees. Greg Eisenberg is Executive Director of the Volunteer Organization. His goal is to help organizations acquire the funding they need to continue helping refugees entering the country. The Denver chapter of the International Rescue Committee, IRC, is the most recent organization he has set up fundraising events for. We had a flashpoint on the subject of immigration and refugees. I think this is the beginning of the refugee crisis worldwide, Eisenberg says. More people will be displaced as time goes on, and Colorado is going to be a sanctuary. For many years, Colorado has welcomed Afghan refugees as well as refugees from other countries. Colorado Department of Human Services Deputy Director of Communications Madeline Rubel says cross-agency partnerships led by the Office of New Americans, the Division of Emergency Management, and the Colorado Refugee Services Program are standing by to help. Colorado is always ready and willing to resettle those in need based on resources available, Ripple says. Our main focus right now is to bolster the ability of refugee resettlement agencies and their partners to meet the needs of newcomers, including through housing and employment assistance, to ensure that Afghan families are able to find safety, sanctuary, and opportunity here in Colorado. Governor Jared Polis has sent two letters this year to the Biden administration urging the president to expedite solutions and act quickly to help Afghans who face increased threats and unsafe conditions. In Colorado, our state and local communities are proud partners in global humanitarian and refugee resettlement efforts, and Colorado has long partnered with the federal government to play our part. Our veteran community knows the value of the role these Afghans played overseas, and our greater Colorado community shares with you American values of humanitarianism and compassion, Governor Polis wrote in the most recent letter. Colorado stands ready. Dirtwire's Restless Walkabout, the Oakland-based experimental world music trio on channeling the blues, the challenges of ambient, owning the space at festivals, and adding a drum kit to the mix by Dave Kirby. The thing starts a little ominously. The nervous whine of an arpeggio picked up across a telecaster with heavy reverb. The eloping tempo behind it maybe evoking some imaginary western with tumbleweeds and horses and distant sandstone buttes. Slide guitar comes in, veins across the teletonal body. And then comes the voice of the late Ram Dass, recounting a particularly intense LSD jaunt he took in a hotel room in Kansas, of all places, an occasionally chuckling audience punctuating his narrative. He recounts seeing all the world suffering, embracing humanity, and eventually condensing the fire hose of thoughts and panic and awe and revelation into a perfectly reductionistic epiphany of self. All this sometime after he wisely stopped himself from running naked to the front desk to beg for an ambulance. Events like the one that he describes are indisputably profound experiences in the first hand. They lose a little of their technicolor relief in the retelling, though. Kind of a you-had-to-be-there sort of thing. 
with the spoken word alone, and especially for those not necessarily devotees of Ram Das and his work, one may be left to wonder, no, left with no more than the irony that one of the most renowned psycho-spiritual teachers in the late 20th century bagged the nature of everything in a Kansas motel. But the soundtrack embraces it as something, if not profound, at least dramatic and vivid and owning its own space. Cooked up and released a couple months ago by California Ethnotraconica trio Dirtwire, Mid-American Hotel leans into the group's bluesy Americana vibe, one of the stations of the Oakland-based trio's many musical influences. There are some things that can only be said well with a tweaked-up telly. The Ram Dass Foundation reached out to us, explains founding member David Satori. They were putting together a compilation that just came out in August, and we were the featured single on it. They gave us a bunch of options, a bunch of different links to audio of 10-minute to half-hour talks. We went through and listened to them and sort of sampled one that we were inspired by. And then we took a jam that we had started before that. It was really just this progression that Mark Reveley had come up with. And then we built it out, did some overdubs, kind of built it around the vocal sections. It was the first spoken word piece we'd ever done. Since its inception in 2012, originally as a duo with David Satori, who is also founder of Beats Antique, and Evan Fraser, the with Mark Reveley joining around 2016, Dirtwire has probed and poked at a dizzying collage of musical influences, Brazilian, West African, South Asian, contemporary electronica, Appalachian, the Delta, mandolin meets Ngani, steel, lap steel guitar meets kalimba, cigar box guitar, zabumba, toy piano, wamala, as at turns mesmerizing, confounding, and yet eerily familiar, what on paper should sound like some pranksters goofing off in an after-hours world music shop, actually renders as a team of sound craftsmen coaxing aural images and teasing melodic phraseology from carefully measured and meditated instrumentation, pieces that challenge the listener and dare them to find the statement's heart and soul, to come back and listen again, and sometimes again. Because even in Dirtwire's improvised journeys, the soul is always there. Passive listening is always okay, but active listening is richly rewarded. I think we like to be a little challenging for people, like they have to use a little more of their ear than they're used to, Satori says. The, the last year fully revealed the band as masters across divergent disciplines. Their December release, Crux, is largely centered around the blues. The hill country stomp of Sally May, the icy slide guitar of Rain Gonna Fall, the back porch banjo vibe of Sane Rain. Completely at home with these testaments, it's easy to imagine these forms as gravitational influences, a springboard for the wanderings off-continent. 
We enjoy that we can draw on that American heritage as well as the rest of the world because we're so fascinated by global music culture that it's nice to have a common ground to draw from, like blues, Appalachian folk, and combine them with electronica, Fraser says. And yet earlier this year came Hijarta, an EP of ambient soundscapes supporting their friend and frequent collaborator Emma Lucia's angelic vocals singing vocalizing Nordic poetics. The two releases, separated by six months or so, could scarcely be more different from each other. And ambient, as anyone deeply invested in the form will tell you, is a lot harder to get right than it may sound. Reveille agrees. Emma writes a lot of these ancient, sort of Viking tribal songs, hearkening back to her heritage as a Swedish-American, and we had this vision of combining those with ambient and experimental sounds, sort of a work towards creating imaginary, psychedelic journey music in a Nordic tradition. Ambient can be really hard or really easy, Reveille adds. It's a fine line. It's really easy to get 75% there, and it's really hard to get 100%. I did the mix on this Ram Das album. We tend to rotate projects, and I thought, oh, this will be easy, just vocals, some ambient sound design, should take a day or so. And it took months. There were just so many little details, little things that would pop out that would take you on, out of the ability to really drop into the thing. But the journey for the producer and the listener is often the point. So for a trio that resolutely evades easy categorization or pigeonholing in an artistic process where rules and boundaries are routinely defied, how do you know whether something doesn't work? I don't think you ever really know if something will work until you've done it, notes Reveille. For us, it's mostly what will work live, but at the same time, there's a lot that we make that isn't meant to be played live. When we're finished recording music and we've uploaded it, we pretty much move on. How it's received or how well it works doesn't really factor too much. I mean, we do look at Spotify charts and what people like, what they find interesting, but I don't think we spend too much time on the recorded stuff. We do spend a lot of time on what we work live, and we give a lot more leeway to the recorded stuff. We play a lot of kinds of different festivals, notes Satori. Sometimes we'll play a festival that has more electronic-based music, where we're up against big sound systems. We've definitely worked on keeping the dance floor party going. So we've crafted these sort of festival sets, and now we're experimenting with adding a drum set player for this upcoming tour, and that's leading us in some different directions. We're figuring out how to navigate that with the electronic dance party flow of a festival set. So we're kind of in a learning process right now, trying to crack the code. Core values. Boulder's unique apple core IDs, heirloom trees, harvest backyard fruit, and turns fruit into hard cider by John Lendorf. If you haven't noticed it yet in the heat and haze of our prolonged summer, Boulder's apple trees are in their ninth month. They're limb-breakingly heavy with fruit, and the black bears are loving it. Early rain, prolonged heat, and lack of killer freeze means an epic year for apples, and this is a big apple week in Boulder. 
This week, the Boulder Apple Tree Project is tagging hundreds of historic heirloom trees, while Community Fruit Rescue is harvesting backyard trees to supply food banks. And if you bring your home harvested apples to Boco Cider, they'll transform them into delicious hard cider. You could also bake a pie. How did Boulder end up so overloaded with apple trees? That simple question inspired Katherine Sudling, Sudding, a University of Colorado professor and scientist, to form a multidisciplinary team to answer it, says Amy Dunbar-Wallace, project coordinator for the Boulder Apple Tree Project. Basically, if you now live in a neighborhood from North Boulder to South of Table Mesa, your front lawn used to be a fruit orchard. In the late 1800s, Colorado was famous for apples, not corn, melon, or peaches. The depression, prohibition, drought, disease, the development leveled most of the trees, but tough old gnarly survivors are still growing in plain sight all over town. We just took students to a couple trees hidden behind a building on campus with tons of sweet apples on it, Dunbar Wallace says. The student said, I didn't realize they were here. Sometimes people don't look into the tree canopy to see what's there. Those are the kinds of trees the Boulder Apple Tree Project wants to hear about, literally, today. Our goal is to identify and preserve these trees from the early days of Boulder orchards. Trees only live about 80 to 100 years here, and many are coming to the end of their natural life. About 10% die of old age every year, he says. The project finds and tags trees, identifies the variety, and grafts some heirloom varieties to young rootstock stock to propagate them. One reason we propagated these trees is that they do seem to do better against diseases. They've demonstrated the ability to survive in pretty rough conditions, Dunbar Wallace says. The group has found numerous varieties, including examples of the original delicious apple trees. Unlike the commercial version, it's one of the tastiest apples I've ever had. Not as red, but very juicy and not as mealy, she says. These grizzled trees hang over ditches in North Boulder neighborhoods, open space land, and along many trails. These are great trees, particularly on South Mesa trails and on Marshall Mesa. Taste the apples, Dunbar Wallace says. This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Kate McCann. Please stay tuned for the next program. Governor of Colorado predicts a failing grade for a controversial Pueblo fire investigators say they now know the cause. Can Western Slope oil shell development make a comeback? Y esas fueron las noticias del día. The Audio Information Network of Colorado. Listen, learn, connect. This is Primetime Postscript. I'm Mike Cuthbert. The vegetable gardens are moving from the backyard to the front thanks to a new creation by an architect from California that he calls Edible Estates. John Kalish reports on this environmental and social statement writ large on a front lawn in, where else? New Jersey, the Garden State. A Los Angeles architect named Fritz Haig conceived the Edible Estates project as an attack on the front lawn, which he sees as socially isolating and a cause of both air and soil pollution. By June, he had created three gardens in Salina, Kansas, Lakewood, California, and London, England. 
There was to be an edible estates garden put into the front yard of a home belonging to a Queens family of Indian descent, but architect Fritz Haig says the family patriarch nixed the idea at the last minute. The father couldn't be convinced to get rid of his lawn. He said it was like not wearing a tie. Enter Michelle Christman and her husband Christopher Way. They're in their 30s and live in Maplewood with a 15-month-old son, Atticus Huckleberry, and two French bulldogs named Bodie and Yoda. They used to live in Manhattan and perform in a rock band, not surprising given their seriously tattooed arms. Nowadays, Chrisman has an organic baby food company and her husband scores movies and commercials. Chrisman insists they're not really crunchy granola types, but she says that after their son Atticus was born, they started living a more environmentally conscious life. We put up a compost and I hung up a clothesline and I've started looking into putting solar panels on the house and putting in rain barrels to collect storm water and things like that. When Chrisman heard that Fritz Haig was looking for a house in the New York metropolitan area for one of his edible estate gardens, she jumped at the opportunity. Haig and a group of volunteers showed up in Maplewood on a hot weekday morning and took a rototiller to the 30-foot by 40-foot front lawn. $10,000 worth of supplies were donated by a gardening company in Vermont, and germinated plants had to be acquired at a nearby nursery because the project was running behind schedule due to the last-minute cancellation in Queens. Christman and her husband now have a series of four-foot square raised beds on the lawn made out of recycled plastic. To the plowed over sod and existing soil, they added peat moss, dehydrated cow manure, potting soil, and mushroom compost. There are figs, apples, corn, strawberry, squash, eggplant, peaches, cherries, grapes, peppers, cucumber, watermelon, lettuce, and lemongrass growing on this suburban plot. Not all the neighbors are crazy about the concept, but Crispin says the vast majority of the feedback she's gotten so far has been positive. I have a neighbor who is less than on board with it. Her response was, vegetables, not flowers. The front yard, not the backyard. And so why the front yard? So I could tell that she wasn't too happy about it, and I'm just hoping that as the garden progresses and she sees how kept it is and how beautiful it is and you know when I can start sharing the wild blueberries with her she starts to see value in it. I don't believe that it's going to lower property values and that it's going to look unkempt which I think is what people are worried about immediately. Architect Fritz Haig is hoping the garden in Maplewood will inspire others in town to transform their front lawns into edible estates. The whole point of doing it in the front yard is to make it a public spectacle that everyone is aware of and um, reconnect people with their food, where it comes from, but also with each other. Since they're gardening in the front yard, they take the space that otherwise was a no-man's land that nobody was welcome on and start to reconnect with their neighbors and become very visible, have a visible presence on the street. I'm John Kalish in Maplewood, New Jersey. Footprints created.
This has been Primetime Postscript made possible by AARP and today, John Kalish. Hear more postscripts and see some wonderful multimedia offerings on our website, radioprimetime.org. I'm Marisa Volpe with the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado. Please call us if you have questions or concerns about your loved one living with Alzheimer's disease. 1-800-272-3900. 1-800-272-3900.